0: Hey, uh, we are continuing a series of messages about the questions Jesus asks. The first question he asked his disciples, you can read it in John chapter 1. Uh, he walks by John the Baptist and John the Baptist says something about the Lamb of God. Two of John's disciples get up to follow Jesus. Jesus turns around and says, what do you want? Like that's the question that's underneath every other question question that God asks us. Here's a great quote from James K.A. Smith. He says, it's the question buried under almost every other question Jesus asked. He doesn't first ask, what do you know? What do you believe? It's what do you want? It's the most incisive, piercing question he can ask because we are what we want. We actually become the things that we long for. Our wants, our desires are the core of our identity. Everything else, our actions, our behaviors, everything else in our life actually flows from what we want. And so the questions Jesus is asking us help us become more intentional, more attentive to what we love. And this is the question that's everything else. A big part of following Jesus is really about learning to pay attention to what you love, what you desire, and allowing God to reorient those desires, to recalibrate those desires, our priorities. Here's another way to think about it. Think about this for a second. What's the purpose of the Vineyard Church here in Duluth? Or to make it more personal, what are you doing here? Like, why do you join us on the weekends, either in person or online? Like, like, why, like why do you go to a small group? Are, are we here because you're just wide awake this morning and you couldn't come up with something better to do? Like, is that why we're here? Like, you, you know, as, as we come together, like as you're sitting in the room, what are you hoping for? Why have Christians, why have followers of Jesus continued to gather together Every single week for a couple thousand years, regardless of persecution or hardship. Why? Well, fundamentally, from a biblical point of view, we're here because we want to become genuine human beings, reflecting the image of the God that we're made in, whose image we're made. The point of gathering together regularly and going through some of the things that we go through, like worshiping together or taking communion together, is to regularly reorient our lives around the resurrected Christ. The reason the early church gathered together on Sunday, the first day of the week, rather than on Saturday, the last day of the week. I know that right there is just mind-blowing, right? The reason that the church did that was because of the resurrection of Jesus. And they were regularly, before they went to work, on the first day of the week, which was Sunday, they regularly gathered together early in the morning... So that they could reorient their lives around who Jesus was. Like we're, we're reorienting our lives in the world as, as God's image bearers. We're reorienting, we're, we're receiving gifts from the Spirit and gifts from one another gifts of love and gifts of challenge. We, we're participating in our ongoing formation, being recreated in the image of God for our own lives and for the rest of the world. And believe it or not, we actually can't do that independent of one another, uh, no matter how independent uh, we think we are. I love the way that uh, Hans Ruckmacher, his Dutch theologian, professor, author, summed it up this way. He said, Christ did not come to make us Christian. Christ came to make us fully human. Let's think about that for a second. He didn't come to make you a Christian, like a religious Thing He came to actually rebirth humanity, being in the, made in the image of God into your life. And that's actually what being Christian is. It's not just believing certain things. I'm going to get into that in a little bit more detail in our passage today. It's not just voting certain ways. It's, it's actually becoming real human, the way that God originally created us to be. Christ died for us in order to restore our humanity, to give meaning back to God's creation. And in the process of discipleship, what I'd say the church is about, we're learning together how to reorient our heart, our loves, our desires around Jesus. Because living in the world, but not of the world, it's super easy to get off track. And there's lots of course corrections that are needed as we go. So I wanna look at a biblical story. If you have a Bible, it's in Mark 10. I wanna look at a biblical story that highlights not only how easy it is to get off track, but one of the biggest warnings Jesus gives us about getting off track. And it's one that affects every single one of us every single day of our lives, right? and so. Mark chapter 10, let me give you a little bit of background, starting in verse 17. This is another one of those triple synoptic traditions. That means the story appears in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's an interaction that they all write about, and they all write about it very similarly, although we find out details that we didn't know from any one of them when we combine them all together. It somehow left a mark on their lives, like they remembered this interaction, right? Secondly, it comes in the Gospel of Mark just after Jesus finishes blessing the children that parents are bringing to him, and he's highlighting how becoming part of God's kingdom is a gift that God gives to those who acknowledge their own helplessness, who realize they don't measure up, who realize they can't do it on their own. And in the dialogue that follows today's interaction that we're going to read, Jesus is predicting for the third time his upcoming trial and death, highlighting how the kingdom of God costs you absolutely everything, and it's totally worth it. And Mark puts this interaction right in the middle of those two, blessing the children and predicting his death. So Mark chapter 10, I'm going to start reading in verse 17. Let me pray, and then I'll read that passage. Heavenly Father, thank you for the scriptures, for the way that you teach us, the way that you... Record these words of Christ so that we can be challenged by them. And Lord, by your Holy Spirit today, would you challenge us? Would you encourage us? Would you give us hope? Would you use these questions that Jesus asked to actually bring a reorientation to our loves? We invite your presence here even more. In Christ's name I pray, amen. All right, you guys with me? Mm -hmm. Three of you are. That's awesome, great, I'll keep going. Mark 10, starting in verse 17. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. There's Jesus answering a question with a question. You know the commands, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, you shall not defraud, honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I've kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven, then come follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle <laughs> than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Sorry, that always makes me giggle. I always want to like illustrate it. That would be a fun illustration. One big, long, bloody thread. I'm sorry, Verse 26, the disciples disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at him and said, with man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Then Peter spoke up. (laughs) You got to love Peter. We have left everything to follow you. Verse 29, truly I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times more uh, as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But, verse 31, many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. All right, let's get to break this down for a second. I wanna just go through the interaction looking at the statements and the questions. From all three gospel writers, we know that this fellow is young. We know that he is some sort of ruler. He has authority over others, and that he is wealthy. So it's not normal for that kind of person in any age, but especially in the first century, to kind of come running up to Jesus and slide in on his knees. He's not coming into second base. right? It's not normal to have somebody who's dignified, run up, and then fall on your knees. That should catch our attention. That should say, hey, something's up here. Something's going on. And then he compliments Jesus, good teacher, and then he asks him a question about eternal life, a question any religious leader would love. Like, let me write you a book on how to answer that question. Right? Any religious leader is like, dude, you're asking the exact question. How do you get the kind of life that God has promised? How do you get God's kind of life in your own? It's the kind of question a religious teacher finds fascinating, and Jesus ignores the question completely. Instead, he confronts his greeting. It's like if you sent a letter to somebody that said, you sent one to me that said, Dear Michael, and, my re- and then you ask really good questions, and my response was, well, what do you mean by dear? Like, how dear am I to you? Like, do we even know each other well enough to be called dear? Like, are we talking about an animal or is there something else going on? In, 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 in my relationship with Brenda, she pointed out to me after about the first uh, couple years of marriage that whenever I said dear, it was not in a, um, a what, what would you call it, not in a, an affectionate kind of way. It's like, okay, dear, like that kind of thing. And she said, could you just never say that to me again? <laughs> I'm like, corrected. Right? It's like, but Jesus is like, he's cha- like just challenging the greeting. You might get that kind of challenge back and go, well, excuse me. Let me try to ask it a different way, Mr. Mediocre Teacher. Right? Instead of good teacher. Like, and, then, and then before he has a chance to respond, Jesus recites a bunch of the commandments from Exodus, from Deuteronomy. Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 5. I don't, I don't know if you noticed this, but when Jesus lists the commands he seems to ignore the first four. He only lists like five through ten. I wonder what that's about. Like when you're reading the scripture, those are actually really good observations to begin to make. I'm going to get back to that in a minute. And I love the way that the young man says, um, uh, like, I've done it all since I was a kid. We might look at that response as, as egotistical. We might look at it as prideful today. But... This young man is actually claiming the very same thing the Apostle Paul claimed in in Philippians chapter 3. As for zeal, persecuting persecuting the church. As for righteousness based on the law, Paul says, I was faultless. See, They're not actually claiming when they say I've kept all the commands to, to be sinless. They're claiming to be blameless according to the system that God had laid out. Judaism required that you dedicate yourself to a way of life in which you kept the commandments and that you followed the patterns of forgiveness or apology, repentance when you made mistakes to live them out. When you were doing that, you were blameless according to the law. And he says, that's what I've done. And I love verse 21. What does Jesus say in verse 21? He looks at him and he loved him. Do you realize in the Gospel of Mark, nowhere else does it say that Jesus loves somebody? That's where it says it in the Gospel of Mark, the rich young ruler. He looked at him and he loved him. The the guy, we know how the story ends. The guy leaves, right? He doesn't become a follower of Jesus. Yet even in the midst of that, I love Jesus' love and compassion right there. I don't know what you picture when you look at when you think about Jesus looking at you. Verse 21 gives me a lot of hope. Like, my, Michael is kind of like a, a, a bit of a goof off, uh, a guy who has screwed up well, at least my fair share of times, if not more than that. Like, when I picture Jesus looking at me, I picture him looking at me this way. Partly because I've read the scriptures a whole lot and I see that's how he feels about us. Some of us don't picture God that way. We picture him looking at us this way. Right? I can't wait to squish you under my thumb. But what if that's not how he looks at you? Even for somebody who's not going to follow him. I I wonder how we, you and I, this is in my notes by the way, this is like just the good stuff that comes out in the middle of standing in front of you and preaching. I wonder how you and I look at people who don't follow Jesus, who decide not to, who are maybe doing things that we just think are bad. Jesus looks at us and he loves us. That's, uh, there, I, I could just do a whole new sermon on that one. And then he says one thing you lack. He doesn't challenge the fact that maybe he didn't keep the law, as it's been stated, but now he's going to drive the point home much deeper. One thing you lack, and then he lists three things to do. If I was the young guy, I'd be like, well, is it one thing or three things? Right? He lists three things to do, like go sell everything you have, give it to the poor, number two, and then come follow me, number three. I thought I lacked one thing. Now you're telling me to do three things. Like, Jesus, make up your mind. Here's my question for us to consider. What if the three things Jesus is giving him to do really are only one thing? What if it's all one thing? What if the list Jesus is giving him is addressing the issues around the first four commandments that Jesus doesn't mention? What if the things that he didn't mention are actually really summed up right here? The first four commandments have to do with our responsibilities before God, to worship God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength, to not place other gods before Him. What if Jesus is addressing those commandments with this? What if the underlying issue isn't really about the selling or the giving or even the following? What if it's what do you really want coming out again? What if it's a complete reordering of priorities? What if when your priorities are in the right order, the selling and the giving and the following actually come naturally? You're in the flow with that. And then Mark describes his reaction with a particularly descriptive word in the Greek. It means, when it says his face fell, it means to be shocked, to be intensely dismayed, to be appalled, to be as overcast as the sky, to be gloomy, to be disheartened. Dude, the guy just had his heart broken. This young man, think about it, had been able to manage this whole checklist of spirituality, the whole checklist of things to do and not do regarding our relationships with other people, but a complete reordering of his priorities, a recentering of his life around God, a complete reorientation of, proved too difficult. Again, I wonder how you and I today might be sometimes more focused on a spirituality checklist than we are on a complete reordering of priorities. I think that's something God wants to get at today. I think he wants to highlight the ways that sometimes we are way more focused on a checklist of either believing we're doing the right things than we are on real relationship with the living God. Moment by moment relationship. The commandments were actually never about an extensive checklist. All 613 commandments that we find in the Old Testament really aren't about a checklist of how to be more spiritual, how to be better a person, like how to get what you think you want when you die kind of thing. The commandments We're always about what a covenant relationship, a reorientation, a God-centered way of life looks like. And by the way, this makes the earlier nitpicking with the word good make way more sense. If you go back to that very first part of the interaction, good teacher, why do you call me good? What if Jesus wasn't nitpicking? What if that's actually precisely the answer to his question? How do I get eternal life? What if it's all summed up in who you call good? If you actually know the reason that it's right to kneel before Jesus, if you know the reason that it's right to call him good, if you know the reason that it's right to follow him, if you know the reasons to those things, right, then you would have had the one thing Jesus said that he was missing. Knowing why you call him good involves knowing who you think he actually is. And Jesus is putting himself at the central place of that covenant relationship with God. He's putting himself right at the focus. If you take a magnifying glass, you know, and you try to get, do you guys ever do this where you try to burn like a piece of paper? Or I lived in El Paso, Texas, and we would try to fry ants with a magnifying glass in the sun, right? And and, uh, they were fire ants, right? So we burned them. Anyway, so you you take the magnifying. What if like, you take all of the gospel, everything you know about God, and you focus it right down? Jesus is saying, it's him. He's like the focus. He's the center of the whole thing. I know I distracted some of you guys with the ants. Jesus is putting himself in the place of covenant relationship at the center as more important than possessions or wealth. And sadly, this is the last we hear of this young man. In all three Gospels, we don't hear about him again. A potential follower of Christ who had great resources to help support the mission, we don't hear about him again. So what is it that's so dangerous about money? What is it that's so dangerous about wealth? Like if we could cut to the chase here, what's so dangerous? Well, here's the deal. We're designed to live in deep connection with God, heart, soul, mind, and strength, and with one another, loving one another as we love ourselves think about it. For those of you that are like older, like my age, when you didn't have much money and you wanted to move, how did you do it? You got your friends, right? You needed your friends because you didn't have resources to actually accomplish some of the stuff you needed to do. Like you needed people in your life, you needed a community around you to help you get settled at college. You need help as a young family watching your kids because you can't afford to pay for childcare all the time. But as your wealth increases, here's the deal. As my wealth increases, I need you less and less and less. Because the same relationships that I needed to help me through life, now I can get through life just fine without. And all the problems that came with all those relationships, I don't have to deal with them anymore. I just pay somebody to do it. And if they don't do a good job, I pay somebody else. One of the things that wealth does in our lives, it does a lot of stuff, it affords us the ability to get whatever we want without the relationship, without the connection, without the heartache, without the hardness. Some of us who are older, just in this regard, we look back longingly, often from a place of loneliness, at the relationships we had when we were younger, when we actually needed our friends, even though those relationships sometimes got intensely difficult. Am I making sense? Nobody else lives in that spot, do you? It's like that's one of the things that wealth does for us. With enough, with enough money, you can get whatever you want without entangling yourselves in the personalities or the needs of other people. I might not be able to turn stuff into gold, as the old nursery rhyme, but I can turn money into pretty much anything I want. If you have enough money, you can find someone who legally or not will find a way to give you what you want. Jesus gave money. He used a very ancient name when he talked about money. Uh, Biblically, we hear the the word mammon. And it's not just a generic noun. It's actually a name. Look at this passage. Matthew chapter 6, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and mammon. That's the actual word that's there. We often translate it money, but mammon. It's a comprehensive word in the Greek for all kinds of possessions and earnings, but it's a personified name with seriously negative connotations in Greek Greek literature. There's all sorts of other words that Jesus or the gospel writers could have used to describe money or wealth that don't have a negative connection, but they didn't. Here's what Andy Crouch writes about this in a book called The Life We're Looking For. He says For mammon uh, does want something very much indeed. Mammon is not ultimately just a thing or even a system, but a will at work in history. You read all sorts of writers like Richard Foster and Dallas Willard about this same thing. And what it wants, above all, is to separate power from relationship, abundance from dependence and being from personhood. Go back to that previous slide for just a second, Matthew chapter 6. No one can serve two masters. He's making money into a Lord. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and mammon. You can't serve in two directions at the same time. He's describing mammon as a rival lord, a lord who demands your devotion, your servanthood. Jesus describes mammon as a lord who will cause you to turn away, to walk away, to despise the resurrected Christ. Isn't that what we see in the rich young ruler? When it comes down to having to make a choice, he makes a choice. And the choice isn't Jesus. No one can wholly belong to two masters. In the kingdom of God, there is no shared ownership of your life or mine. None whatsoever. And the rival Lord that we bow down to in our culture more than any other Lord is mammon. There's no half measures in following Jesus. It's a complete impossibility Now listen, Jesus isn't teaching that poverty is ideal, nor does he categorically condemn all wealth. The greatest enemies to faith in God and obedience to God are pride and self-sufficiency and self-satisfaction. That's why the Apostle Paul goes on to write, those who want to get rich, 1 Timothy 6, 9, Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. So what can wealth do in our lives? From a biblical point of view, why is this so dangerous? And what is it about this rival Lord that is constantly drawing us in? Well, here's a couple things. Wealth in our lives, we talked about how it separates us from one another. It can actually give you an illusion of fullness. Like that rich young man, our lives can look like they feel totally full, and then there's really no need or reason for God in what he's doing. As individuals, as a church, we can go through long periods of time where we are just really out of touch with our needs and our failures in terms of who God really is. Wealth can be like a narcotic drug that just numbs our senses. One of the things that I have personally enjoyed about the past couple years is about how my senses, about how I think I have life figured out and have it all together, were radically challenged through a period of COVID. Like nobody had stuff figured out. Turns out the people with the loudest voice who thought that they had the most figured out (laughs) didn't. The folks who should have humility often didn't. And we see the result of it, like in our country and in our lives. Wealth can give you an illusion of fullness. I love the way that God sometimes strips that away. You and I really need that in our lives so that we answer the question honestly again, what do you really want? Wealth can tend to also make you forget about God. Think about the Israelites when they're about to enter the promised land. God gave them a strong warning to remember where all their blessings came from. Deuteronomy chapter 8. You may say to yourself, my power and the strengths of my hands have produced this wealth for me. Whenever things are going really well, we tend to look at ourselves in the mirror and go, you know what, I'm the reason my life is going great. Have you realized yet that there's no such thing as a self-made man or woman? There's no such thing, not in your life, not, his, not, not historically, like nobody. It's actually physically impossible to lift yourself up by your own bootstraps. You'll just rip off your bootstraps. Like God asks us to participate in stuff and we can follow him and we can obey him, but everything comes from his hand alone, the ability to earn wealth, the the ability to be relationally wealthy, intellectually wealthy, the ability to look this good. What are you laughing at? It all comes from God and God alone, right? I know I laugh about it too. It's a joke. Right? Money I love Richard Foster's line money asks for our allegiance in a way that sucks the milk of human kindness out of our very being. It really does. Wealth can also cause us to miss the purpose of life. The parable of the rich fool in Luke chapter 12. Two brothers are arguing over an inheritance, asking Jesus to settle the argument, and so he tells a story of an abundant harvest and a guy who built bigger and bigger barns and decided to take life easy. In Luke chapter 12, verse 15, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Wow, that's a great line for America. Watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist, Michael, of more motorcycles in the garage. Even though it seems like you need one for every kind of road. Life does not consist of that. And so he tells the story of this abundant harvest, bigger barns, a guy decided to take life easy. Verse 20, but God said to him, you fool. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. And then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? The word fool is basically the Greek version of, you stupid, unintelligent idiot. I know, mom said don't say that, but Jesus did hear it to that guy. And then you've missed the purpose of your life. The Greek word telos speaks of the end, the goal that you were made for. Jesus calls this man a fool because he misses the purpose. How did he miss the purpose? mammon. He gave in to a rival Lord. So here's a few practical suggestions concerning our wealth. Aren't you glad you came today? Listen, if you live in this country and you got here not by walking and you have like a watch or a pair of eyeglasses, it puts you in the, like the top 1% of the wealthiest people on the planet today. Here's a few things that God Uh, that I think practical uh, suggestions concerning our wealth. Number one, ask God why he's given you what he's given to you. It's painfully simple. Just ask God why you have it. Ask him where he wants your life to go. Like ask him to break the power that money has in your life. Ask him to give you single-hearted devotion to him alone so if something were to come up And you're appearing before Jesus and you fall at him and you say, good teacher. And then he starts challenging you. At the end of that challenge, there's something in you that can't walk away. Like we see in Peter and some of the others. And so ask God why he gave it to you. Just start there. Ask him. Whenever I'm confused about stuff, which is a lot, I just ask God, God, what are you doing here? Like, I don't, I don't see how this all fits together. I don't see how this works. God, what are you doing here in this relationship? I have no clue why they're mad at me. I look in the mirror, I'm fine with me. Like, why do they not like me? There's a lot to like. Well, I've lost a little weight, so there's less to like, but there's still something there to like, right? Ask God. That's like the best thing you can do. Number two, plan your budget in response to what God's concerned about, what's on his heart. Listen, proper use of money is not just to live as high as we possibly can down here. Jesus says that's a really poor investment. The proper use of money is actually to invest as much as possible in the lives of people. That's when he says we have treasure in heaven. He, says, he doesn't say it's wrong to store up treasure. He says store up lots of it. But store it up where moth and rust can't get to it and where thieves can't break in and steal. One of the best things you can do is invest in the lives of the people around you and what he's doing. And then another one, break the power, and this is a tough one for us, break the power that money has in your life by giving it away. Break the power of it by giving it away. Those who are wealthy, we need to hold our possessions loosely, not placing our hope in them, but being generous, not using them for our own benefit. I love the way Richard Foster writes this in a a book called, uh, I forget what it's called today. I have an old copy of it. It's called Money, Sex, and Power, but then they didn't like the sex in there, so they changed the title. Um, But you can find it, um, and, and, and he writes this. For the sake of faithfulness to Christ, we need to find ways to shout no to the God of money. We have to dethrone it, and one of the best ways to dethrone it is by showing our disrespect for it. When we trample it under our feet, we remove its power. He goes on to say, step on it. Give it away. Like when, when, when you just simply say, "Like I'm not talking about not saving. I'm not talking about not planning for the future. The Proverbs say that the people who don't plan for the future are actually idiots as well. And so I'm not talking about not doing that, but I'm talking about when you find something begins to have a hold of your heart, you actually just give it away. You actually just part with it. I think I've told this story here before Uh, as a young guy. uh, I was a art student in Chicago. I was getting ready to move. My life just fell apart around me and I had this one whole room in my apartment in Chicago that was just all books with an aquarium in the middle. And I was sitting in my wonderful beanbag chair one day and reading a book and enjoying the bubbling of the aquarium. And I just asked the Lord before my life really fell apart. Is there anything in my life that stands between you and me? And I felt like God said, oh yeah, open your eyes. And I looked around and I saw my books and I go, I don't get it, like what? He goes, your books, your books are an idol, right? You do everything you can to cherish those and hold on to them. And I felt like he said, give them away. So I went to that one bookshelf, you know, that had the paper books, paperbacks that you get for free that have the cover ripped off, you know, so you can't like resell them. Did they still do that today? No, they don't do that anymore. Cool, thanks for telling me that. Anyway, and I thought, yeah, I'll give those away. They're like paperbacks. They're like, you know, front covers missing. And I felt like I started to pull those off. And I felt like the Lord said, no, 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 no. Start down here over here on the floor. I'm like, those are my books. And I felt like the Lord goes, exactly. By the time I I gave away like everything in that room except maybe 10 books that I felt like he told me I could keep that I still have. And by the time I got done giving those all away, I couldn't believe how amazing it felt. To actually have blessed other people with some really good volumes and to not have those things own me any longer. What do you own that actually owns you? What do you own that might actually own you? Break the power by giving it away. Perhaps there's a needy next door neighbor Maybe there's a specific ministry that God's accomplishing, like right here. Maybe there's an opportunity to actually spread the gospel or plant a church in another part of the city, in another part of the state, in another part of the world. Maybe there's an opportunity to invest in the future of a bright young student that you're connected to. Those are wonderful investment opportunities. Giving is a glad and generous thing that we are called to. In times of persecution, the followers of Jesus give their lives. In times of prosperity, we give our life's work. William Law said of the early Christians that they were glad to turn their whole estates into a constant course of charity. And so we're to use money to advance the kingdom of God. What an absolute tragedy it would be as followers of Jesus if we just use money the same way everybody used money. What an amazing opportunity that God's given us in the midst of this. And so Jesus offers himself as a substitute for the rich young ruler's possessions. Sell your stuff, give the money away, and then find what you really want following me. And the young man goes, "Eh, actually what I really want is what I currently have. Thanks a lot, Jesus. I'll just do it from here. My encouragement is don't follow his example even if you have to brag a little bit like Peter. But we gave everything to follow you. You're right, you did. And then he takes it deeper. And I love the way he says at the very end, a word to Peter, the first will be last and the last will be first. Jesus' economy is totally different and he promises to actually give us everything we really need along the way. All right, that's what I got. Let's stand up and pray for one another. I think there's enough challenge there. Jesus, I believe that he's looking at us today. I want us to picture the face of Christ. He's looking at us today with incredible love. This is like a really hard confrontational passage if you dive into it. He's calling us beyond a safe haven. He's calling us beyond our security and our resources. He's inviting us to reorient, to reorder, you know, our real life, our daily life. It gets really practical when he addresses issues of money and the power that mammon actually has in our lives. But I think he's looking at us with love, and he's saying, what do you really want? And so, Holy Spirit, would you allow us to see right now the eyes of Christ The face of Christ looking at us with love and saying, what do you really want? I'm right here. What do you really want? God, would you give us the courage to not just answer this on the surface, to not just take a cursory look at this, but to really dive in in this moment right here. Holy Spirit, We need your presence to take this deeper than mere words and meet us where we live. So would you come? If you're on the ministry team, can you make your way up here? There's some of us in the room, some of us online, that you can't picture Jesus looking at you with eyes of love. And I think God wants to minister to you today. Like If you can't picture him looking at you with eyes of love, that he actually really wants the best for you. He wants your life to flourish. He wants you to experience what it means to be fully human, fully alive, with joy bubbling over. That's what he has for us. And so, if that's hard for you to picture or hard for you to believe, would you take a big risk and come and get some prayer? We would love to pray with you about that. I think that's just a giant thing that he's doing in our lives right now. And then others of us, we've actually found ourselves caught between Jesus as Lord and mammon as Lord. And you can see times in your life that you've gone one way and times in your life that you've gone the other. And again, Jesus with love is looking at you and say, come follow me. And his, his solution to this young man seems so incredibly extreme. It seems so, like, drastic. And we're almost afraid to ask him what he'll do because we're afraid of the same drasticness coming to us. But I think he wants to meet you in that moment. And when he reorders priorities he does it in such a gracious way that he meets us and gives us way more than we ever gave up. And so I just pray that we would have a gift of faith to believe that what he says he can do he can actually do no matter what we let go of. And so if you find your decisions in life are being controlled by mammon, would you come get some prayer? If you find that that's the first thing that you think about in any decision, when the thought of actually giving something meaningful away gets presented, when the first thing that happens is you come up with a million excuses of why that's a really stupid idea, Would you come get some prayer? I think God wants to really challenge us. And I think he's calling us to be individuals in a community that reflect the image of God. We reflect the generosity of God himself. God's a great planner. He's a great sustainer. And he's insanely generous. We want to reflect reflect all of that. And so these guys are going to lead us in worship for a little bit. Come and get some prayer. We would love to pray for you today. Other than that, God bless you guys. Thanks for coming to the vineyard today.